0: Okay, thank you guys. You may be seated. Um, I am going to uh, be slaughtering some sacred cows this morning. I believe it's just the right weather. Actually, there's nothing wrong with the air conditioner at all. We just thought we'd ex- let you experience what it's like in Fiji. Uh, minus the humidity. It's actually nowhere near as uh, uncomfortable. Uh, right, here, right in the open air there, as soon as you bend over a piece of wood to hammer in a nail, it just water just springs from every pore in your body. It's amazing. Um, But no, there is actually something wrong with the air conditioning and it will be fixed next week. Um, But I had hope that uh, uh, this morning uh, people weren't going to take up much time before the word because um, I've got a lot to get through. So I'm going to have to speak at one and a half times. This morning, because what, what I'm saying is important. Last week, who remembers, we, we discussed how the Old Testament was written, put together, uh, translated, transferred, how we actually come with the Old Testament that we have today, and how it's different from the Old Testament that Jesus used, and how it actually all comes together to, to weave into a coherent and cohesive story that, of God's redemption of his people. And uh, that was pretty exciting, but there were some things we discovered about the Old Testament that perhaps made us a little uncomfortable because we'd believed, I mean some people, hopefully nobody here had sort of had the impression that it came down from God in tablets of gold sort of thing and was sacrosanct and unchanging and stuff like that and we perhaps destroyed that a bit. Um, But this week we're going to do the New Testament and we're going to do the same thing. Uh, If you don't feel a bit uncomfortable, you're either very wise or you haven't studied the New Testament enough. Um... And so we're going to go into uh, four different things. I mean, the new, let's start off. The New Testament is one of the most well-documented pieces of literature in human history. Who's heard of Plato? Who's heard of Alexander the Great? Aristotle? People, people like that who are famous in the historical world often have a total, for instance, of 50 pieces of ancient literat- literature that people have discovered of theirs or, or about them which you know, in, in archaeological terms is a big deal. The New Testament has over 6,000 documents, most of which are complete, which tell us ha- what the New Testament is about. So it's, it's, it's sort of at the top of the heap when it comes to documented uh, pieces of history. And so the history of the writing and the manuscript history of the New Testament has undergone four important phases which we're going to cover this morning very quickly. The first is the writing of the New Testament, the second is the spreading of the New Testament, the third is the collection of the canon, which only has one N and doesn't fire cannonballs. Um, It it actually just means a collection, really. And then we're going to discuss the knotty subject of the English translations of the Bible, why we have so many and why some people are so attached to particular ones, uh, which is... Sorry. Burping there. It's the Euros I had last night. Okay, so let's get on with it. The writing of the New Testament. The writing of the books of the New Testament took place between 45 AD through 100 AD. Unfortunately, none of the New Testament authors have ever said, Here I am, on this date, in this time, writing this book. Never happened. But the consensus that most New Testament scholars would agree with is that the last written books of the New Testament are more likely to be the Gospel of John or the Book of Revelation, as John was the last surviving apostle surviving until the late 90s AD. Uh, don't know whether that means for his age, probably the late 90s for him as well. So in the New Testament, we have five large narrative works, which are stories. So we've got the four Gospels and the Book of Acts. Then we have a collection of somebody's mail, uh, which is the largest portion of the New Testament. Uh, Reading somebody else's mail is apparently a Christian thing. Um, And then we have a unique work in the New Testament, which is a first century Jewish apocalypse, uh, which doesn't quite read like anything else in the New Testament. And we've actually dealt with that. Um, some time ago Uh, and so each of these collections have their own unique history and so we're going to start with the the gospel narrative which are the basic foundation stories about Jesus of Nazareth so we've got a a timeline up on the uh, on the screen here Jesus was actually born in what we would call 4 BC Uh, people didn't get the dating stuff right until quite a bit later Um, and the empty tomb and the crucifixion happened around 30 AD and the gospels were written sometime after that And they've worked this out because you can date how language changes. And so based on the type of language in the Gospels, they can roughly date the age of the Greek. And so you discover there's about a 30 to 50 year gap between the events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth and the writing of the Gospels. And so the troubling question that most people ask is, what the heck is going on in that yellow section? Why is there a caution tape? Actually, I didn't intend it as that, but sounds good. Um, and so usually what it comes down to, there are two schools of thought. You've got modern New Testament scholars who have an axe to grind, have been burned by the church, and uh, have some sort of point to make, who have a negative view of what's going on in this period, and they would say that the stories about Jesus are so garbled and embellished that what ends up uh, in our New Testament in the process is totally historically unreliable. And then you have the other scholars who have golden tablets falling out of heaven that say, no, what we're reading is exactly the words of Jesus and uh, there's actually um, nothing that's changed historically at all and what we see in our New Testament is exactly what happened. And they're the two extremes. Now, who remembers what happens when they're extremes? You take a step back, take a deep breath and then realise that the truth is probably more complicated than both of those ideas. And so what I want to introduce to you is a metaphor known as the quilt. Who's heard of a quilt? Who's ever made a quilt? No? Oh, people have. This is good. So some people know what I'm talking about. So reading the Gospels that we have today is a bit like looking at a finished quilt. And if you know that when somebody starts to make a quilt, when they've finished the quilt, the age of the quilt is determined by when you finish the quilt. Was that fair enough? But that doesn't mean that it's the same age as all the pieces of the quilt. Because, you know, some, some of the pieces of the quilt have been in your great grandmother's sewing box for, for decades. Uh, some of them you got from Spotlight last week. Um, and so th- these various things have been put together. And so when we're reading the Gospels, it's a lot like looking at this quilt. And now, if you think about what's happening here, we can, we can actually trace the process uh, of the individual pieces. And so, let's, for instance, let's go to Luke chapter 1. This is, this is fairly unique, this bit. Uh, it's a very rare passage because we have a biblical author who doesn't say when and where, but he does say why and how. He's actually saying, dear reader, here I am, here's what I'm doing, and here's how I did it. And Luke 1, 1 says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've decided to write that accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So what's he talking about here? What's been fulfilled among us? He's talking about the story of Jesus. And so how many accounts does he say are floating around? Many. So there's a large amount of information floating around there of the gospel. So there's lots of quilt pieces. not sewn together but hanging around out there and we know one of the collection of quilt pieces (laughs) that he's talking about right here is the gospel of Mark. Um, Most scholars think that Mark is the first quilt and then Matthew and Luke have taken up Mark but drawn on other quilt pieces that were not in Mark. John is right out. Uh, no, he's unique because he has some material that relates to Matthew, Mark and Luke but he's gone to a completely different collection of quilt pieces and uh, he's, he's actually done something which is really awesome because he's actually come from a, an independent sort of line of witnesses um, and the teaching of Jesus and when you put it together you notice that there's two things happening. One is that there are differences in how people report the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. Are these profound differences? Most of them, no. But some produce very real tensions when it comes to reading the, the Gospels. And there's actually a struggle that goes on to this day to resolve some of those tensions. Um, and people argue about them mainly because people like to argue. Uh, there, there are some things, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a nice one, the Gospel of John puts the Passover meal the day before every other Gospel. And you sort of think, why did he do that? Did he, did he have a, a bung watch? Was he, was he using a, um, an Omega instead of a Timex or vice versa? Um, we don't know. And this is, as I say, one of these tensions that are hard to, to come to terms with. But the question we need to ask, do any of the differences change the theology of the New Testament or the character and divinity of Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. So... There we have it, we we had all of these witnesses and there's a lot of detail that I'm skipping over here. The the witnesses that they got were actually um, specifically, people specifically appointed to record oral history. They weren't just some rant. They didn't go and interview random people. Hello, wake up! Hey, you, did you see Jesus go past? Oh, yeah. I had a few to drink that day, but yeah, I saw him. It wasn't it wasn't that sort of witness. These people were reliable witnesses. So there's a. Anyway, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about it later. Okay. The next thing we have, of course, is the letters. Now they have a very different process because they're not books. They're letters. Right, and so let, let's just go through a letter. The letter of Romans. Who's the letter of Romans from? Romans 1.1. 1, 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Who's the letter of Romans 2? Verse 7. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. And Now, if we go on to chapter 16, which is just about to finish, he says this strange thing. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honour among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, and especially me. But why does he suddenly bring up this Phoebe person? And why does he say, Well, what's Phoebe going to do? Where's she going? And he mentions her because she's going to Rome. And she's going to Rome with the letter of Romans. So Phoebe is the messenger that Paul is sending, but not only is she the messenger, she is going to be the person who reads the book of Romans to all of the people in Rome. Now if you think of what Paul's renowned for in his interactions with women, some of the things that are in Corinthians, that upsets a few people's apple carts. Paul wouldn't send a woman to do a man's work. Yes, he would. And uh, so it has all sorts of interesting implications. Read on verse 22. I, Tertius, The one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings as one of the Lord's followers. Who's Tertius? (laughs) Well, nobody knows. It's the only time he appears. But it's fairly clear that he's the guy writing it. He just puts in his little footnote, P.S. Paul isn't writing this, I am. Say hi to everyone for me. Um, And so there's a a pattern here that the letters are, are put together by people. It's a community effort. Um, the book of One Peter shows the same. It's a bit like Jeremiah. Remember last week, Jeremiah had the, had the, the scribe. Um, I forget his name. Yeah. Anyway, no, it's Baruch. Baruch. That was his name. Anyway, the book of One Peter shows the same pattern. Peter one one. This letter is from Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who's the letter from? Peter. Who's it to? A hell of a lot of people. (laughs) Um, And who wrote it? Well, 1 Peter 5.12 says, I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, also known as Silvanus, uh, depending on the uh, version that you've got, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. So... He's obviously commending Silas again, so he's not going with the letter. Silas is, and Silas has probably written a lot of it. And it also solves another problem. Because if you've ever read 1 Peter in the Greek, which is not many of us, um, you'll discover that the Greek that it's written is, is, is worthy of Homer. It is poetic high Greek. And you sort of think, how does an Aramaic fisherman write poetic high Greek when he might speak it, but I bet you he don't know the language that good. Um, and that, this solves the problem because um, si- Silas was a Greek scribe, so he knew it, so he, he listened to what Peter said and he, he wrote it down so that people would think it was, was real nice and not just some rubbish cobbled up by Peter. Um, so, he, he well clearly he brought someone along who knows Greek better than he did and communicated what he wanted to communicate the way he did it. So then we have, well how did these letters spread? Because they were given to the churches. There's a clue in Paul's letter to the Colossians, 4.16. It says, after you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. Do we know who the Laodiceans are? Yes. Do we have the letter from Laodicea? Nope. No idea what happened to that one. But somehow it got lost in transit and we know he wrote a letter. But wouldn't we like to find out what he wrote in that letter? But we don't know. It didn't get preserved for one reason or another and wasn't included in his official collection of letters. So clearly Paul's got in mind, he's right into the Colossians, but he's looking over his shoulder at the rest of the church saying, you know, this stuff is for you guys, but it's also for you guys. And uh, this introduces a lot of problems in the New Testament because sometimes it's hard for us to work out what he's saying to a specific group of people and what he's telling his theology for the rest of the church. And so that's another one of the tensions we've got to go through. But essentially what happens is that Paul's letters go viral. They get spread and copied and recopied and spread and copied and recopied to all the other churches, as do all the letters of the New Testament. And these are all the raw materials for the making of the books of the New Testament, which takes us to the next phase of New Testament history. what oh, we're doing well here. The spreading of the New Testament. Has anybody got sore ears yet? I can stop for a few seconds silence no okay let's have a look up here the spreading of the new testament right so the Jesus movement's gone from 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem to thousands of people Jews and non-Jews all over the ancient world spreading as far as Rome at the end of the book of Acts and so the next 200 years of the Jesus movement up to 300 AD uh, the theme is growth and spreading growth and spreading and the new testament is spreading with them And because of that, everywhere in a missionary or an apostle goes, uh, they have to take copies of the scriptures with them uh, of the Greek Old Testament and of the forming books that we now have of the burgeoning New Testament. So a big part of the copying history of the New Testament has to do with the, real, the first urban centres that Christianity appears in And there are four main ones that we can see here, Rome, Syria, Egypt and Asia Minor Now Asia Minor encompasses a fair number of cities but uh, needless to say they're a bit further away from Rome than Antioch, uh, Alexandria which is in Egypt and, and Rome of course so these are the main copy centres. There's buildings that are built, you know. There's startups. You know, there's a dot-com boom, basically. Uh, people are sitting there that's writing away copies of the New Testament, time after time after time, sending them out. And so, w- what happens is that there's going to be unique additions or, or subtractions from each of these copying centres because, damn it, despite how good we are, we always make mistakes. And so there's often spelling errors or words left out or phrases put in or all sorts of different things happen. Uh, and copies from each of these different copying centres are going to be different. And uh, so we've got, we've got an example of one here, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. And if we read that, it says... And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses. And the bit in blue only occurs from the Asia Minor uh, branch of these. It says in, in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit and these three are one. And we have these three witnesses on earth, the spirit, the water and the blood. And all three agree. Uh, in a lot of the other ones the middle section is missed out because w- what's, what's happened right here somebody has looked at this and said this is a perfect place in the New Testament to reinforce the Trinity and so they've actually added that in just to help the understanding of people uh, and, th- and this addition happened in a set of manuscripts in Latin and they're connected to the Asia Minor ones and they eventually made their way to Rome and guess what they made their way into our Bible and so you say well Here's an addition. We've picked it. We've got them. They can't fool us. We've, we've found out that they've actually added this. It helps interpret theologic, theologically what's going on, but if it's not in the original, it shouldn't be there. Discussion over. Wipe it out. And we can do that. Uh, but we can also say, look, are we introducing an idea here that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament? No. The Trinity is one of the basic things in the New Testament. So it's not wrong but we do know that somebody got creative and added it in later uh, to help people understand it. So whether you want to include it in your Bible or not is up to you. It's usually in the footnotes saying this is not included in something. Um, and so essentially we know that there's been changes and things, but we, the great thing about all these copying centres is that we can trace them. But then we run into a problem. Um, After the first 200 years of the New Testament, it's similar to that period we have with the Hebrew Bible. Basically, in short, it's complicated. Um, But that's okay, we should expect it to be complicated because there's people involved. And the, the person that was mainly involved was this Roman emperor called Diocletian. And Diocletian suddenly took it upon himself to say, Christians are bad, bring in the lions, and let's go burn all their books. And so Diocletian goes around and destroys all the churches he can find and all of their books in uh, Egypt, Syria and Rome. And uh, in the end he dies and another Roman emperor comes along before he can get terribly far into Asia Minor. And uh, he says, okay, the, the... It's all off with the Christians. They, they, they can live, take the lines away, f- feed them someone else, that's, that's okay. And so Christians can now engage again in missionary activity and so they st- the, the movement of faith in Jesus starts to grow again and uh, there's a tremendous demand for large numbers of New Testament transcripts again. Where are they going to get these Testament transcripts from? A large copy house. Which is the only copy house that is left? The ones in Asia Minor. And so this becomes the new form... Can I have that a new form of the biblical text, all the way up until 1516. And you get this guy called Erasmus, who actually does, the first, for the first time, does something that he says, OK, let's, let's put this all together and make a New Testament. You think, well, it took him all that time, 1516. And so he had access to a couple of hundred biblical manuscripts, which at the time seemed pretty amazing. And so nobody had ever done it before. But he put together the first New Testament. But we know that all of the manuscripts he found came from the um, Asia Minor chain of tradition. And he based his text entirely on those. And it's it's now what's called the majority text mainly because that's the majority of the script, the things he had. Um, And so it goes forward from there. Uh, People began to use Erasmus' text as the scholarly edition and a few years later a guy named William Tyndale, who should be familiar to some of us, in 1530 decided that he'd do something dangerous and illegal. He translated the Bible into English. Um, He could have been executed for it. Apparently, I I don't know the full history of that, but the Bible in English was regarded as a bad thing um, and nobody was allowed to do it. So he went off and did it in secret um, and produced the first English translation from the best Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that he had were basically Erasmus's. So Tyndale put things into English and then it began to influence the next major English translation which became the dominant English Bible for the last 400 years, which is... King James Version so what it comes down to is we're talking about a thousand year plus period of time that the New Testament is being passed on and translated but based off one manuscript tradition after the Diocletian persecution then we had the age of the British Empire the sun never sets on the British Empire and the British were so pervasive everywhere that they had to develop new hobbies to keep themselves busy so they decided they'd go into archaeology And between 1800 and 1900 was the the dawn of a new age of archaeology where British, German, French scholars went all over the world and found ruins of monasteries in Syria and Rome and Egypt and dug them up. And guess what they found? Books. Books of the New Testament that were older than the majority text. Complete translations of other traditions. And so they thought, well, let's have a look at this and see if they're any different. And guess what? They are. And so we have um, this... You know, great collision if you like of traditions, where we not only have the majority text, but we have all these other texts, and we can now trace these other texts where they came from. And so there's this whole network of we can trace spelling mistakes all the way from Greek, Greece to um, France to Spain uh, to, Mor- to Morocco, where things were copied along one train, and so one scribe's um, mistakes have been. But we can see that the a chain that went down here to Egypt was copied, and so we can actually Trace how the New Testament was spread through the New World just by following the mistakes. See, there's a a silver cloud for every lining. No, there's a... Yeah, anyway, you know what I mean. So we we have uh, the entire New Testament represented in some of these early codex forms, and this was actually really exciting for biblical scholars. And so much so that in about 1960, there were two German scholars named Erwin Nestle and Kurt Allen who put together the uh, Quick Bible, Um, Okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) They actually started to put together the state of the art here's everything we know in one place Bible uh, of the New Testament and it's actually called the nestle Allen New Testament. And it's now in its 27th edition. It is is, uh, digital and it contains every known translation of every phrase in the New Testament. Um, And so this resource... Um, is available to us today. Uh, and so, what is our Bible today? Whew. Thank you for that. Uh, we, we're approaching the end, so stay calm. The collection of the canon. What we, ca- what we carry around in our pockets or on our devices today is, is the canon of Scripture, which is the authoritative list of books that constitutes God's communication to the human race. And so it's important to recognise that as Christians, what we know about Jesus is mediated through Scripture. But it's important to know that the Bible actually isn't trying to draw attention to itself. The Bible is trying to draw our attention to Jesus, right? And so when... when We look at the biblical canon we think it's a list of books that tells us how to behave and has the power to tell us how to behave um, and that the authority is in the book but the biblical view of authority is that all authority is in Jesus and his mission that he's commissioned us to so knowing that we know the story leading up to Jesus called the old testament we know the story of Jesus Peter Paul and James and John are guiding the early church how to live out of that story of Jesus and live out of the gospel. So the question is, once all these guys pass from the scenes, the scene, Jesus, the first generation of apostles, there are a lot more texts produced in the first century than the ones we have in the Bible. What's going on here? And so there's a discerning process, a sifting process, uh, which text comes from this early period is the right one that tells us exactly what's going on? And I think a lot of Christians have this view that there's a, there was an official council once with men in white robes and long beards who sat around and said, in, out, in, out, in. Never happened. If anybody tries to tell you that happened, it never happened. There were councils that met, and they met to look at it and say, well, this appears to be what... Is happening. What happened in the, the church was that everything that was read, everything that was used, rose to the surface. The, the the scriptures that were bringing the presence of God got used. The ones that didn't just didn't get used. And some of the ones we've got now were dicey. The book of Revelation was left out for several decades because people just thought it was too hard. Let's just get rid of it. I'm with them. Um, but it was brought back in. Uh, the book of uh, uh, th- 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 three Peter. Three John, one of those wasn't in as well. But, so it was to do with the usage and how the church was using these books. And all committees did was basically ratify a decision that had already been made. So, um, so, so it was an organic growth, really, out of the church spreading throughout the ancient world. Uh, so in many ways, we can conclude with this. The Bible arose out of the mission of God at work in the world and out of the church spreading and growing and spreading. And so the Bible has very close relationship to the church. It didn't drop down out of heaven. It actually arose out of the history of God's people. And so in its in messiness is beautiful because it speaks to us of what God's doing in the world, which is going to be messy because it involves us. Now, just very quickly in the last two minutes, English translations. Let's have a look at some of them. We've got translations here. The first thing you need to know about all of these translations is that every single one of them is based off exactly the same material. So all we have here, depending on whether you're one of these people who reads blogs and websites that says the King James Version is the only version that blah, 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 you're wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll go so far as to stick my neck out and... An uh, in incite and argument. You can argue with me if you like. But what we've got here on the left, we've got formal translations. Now, the Interlinear Bible is a Bible which has the Hebrew and the Greek and the English underneath it, and you can get word-for-word translations, and if you read the English, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but it is accurate. You get... On the far left you've got the dynamic uh, translations, you've got the message and if anybody's read the message it reads beautifully but it doesn't match with a single word in the Greek or the Hebrew because it's been translated to capture the sense of the main idea uh, not the exact words. So essentially what happens is that groups of scholars go round and they decide on where on that spectrum they want to bring out a Bible whether they want people to be able to read it easily, whether they want people to be able to study it but still read a bit of it. Um, And so all of these translations are basically tailored with a philosophical decision behind them to determine how they're written. Um, Committee, I mean, who's ever heard that phrase, that God so loved the world he didn't send a committee? But... When it comes to putting things like this together, committees are are good ideas because when people do things in isolation, that's when you run into trouble. I mean, there are certain translations of the Bible where certain people have had visions from God to actually write their own interpretation of translations. Uh, There's one out called The Love Bible, I think, which is a bit waffly, Um, but that's fine. I mean, you can read it. It still says much the same thing. But anyway, uh, my two cents worth about translations is there's no such thing as a bad translation. The best translation is the one you actually read. And I encourage you all to read multiple translations over the years of your uh, journey with Jesus. It's good to change them uh, so that you're reading in a new language because it gets ideas into your head in, in a different way. So you make a choice. We have one Hebrew Bible, one Greek Bible and a million versions in English. That's the way it goes. So what does it mean to say my Bible is God's Word? If my translation conveys the meaning that the author had in mind and that's what I get from it, I'd say that's God's Word. Uh, and that you've got to realise, of course, that part of reading the Bible, if you've read it long enough and often enough, is sometimes things spring out that aren't part of the main message that you've got. Something different comes out, the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. It's very hard to put that sort of thing down on paper. The Word of God actually acts through the Word that we're reading quite differently. And so I feel totally confident saying that the Bible is the Word of God um, and that the Word of God is not this golden tablets idea, uh, even though that's what people think. It's probably best to refer to them as the Scriptures or Scripture. God is speaking through the Scriptures. Um, and he's speaking through them. He's not bringing them in as golden tablets. So hopefully that's cleared up a few things. Uh, if it hasn't, speak to me afterwards. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I will let you go into a blessedly cooler place uh, and enjoy coffee. Thank you, Carmen, if you finish up. Awesome. Awesome. Why don't we thank Pastor Chris for a great series. Well, amazing.